I'm Zach. I'm a musician, a former worship leader. I helped destroy Mars Hill Church. I'm not really sure what I believe anymore, and I'm okay with that. I'm Dave. I'm a Bible theology nerd, a movie buff. I am thankfully not being sued for almost $1 billion, and I'm an evangelical. <laughs> yeah, we could all yeah learn from that. Uh, an Alex Jones reference on the show, everybody. This is Veterans of Culture Wars. Veterans of Culture Wars is a podcast where we have conversations all about evangelical Christianity. We welcome you to the podcast, whether you are a believer or not. We have, if uh, longtime listeners of the VCW uh, podcast probably realize we have talked uh, at times about Mars Hill Church. Zach spent nine years there. I spent three years there. And those, I think, are still our most listened to episodes. Um, so there's a lot of people interested in it. Um, Zach and I do not want to make this a show about Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll, but our experiences and kind of how that intersects with evangelical Christianity certainly continues to be relevant out in our area, our neck of the woods in the Seattle area. So we are going to talk a little bit about Mars Hill and some other topics tonight, including hopefully a little bit on music as well. So Zach, who do we have? I think a on lot did on that, talk? but yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, our, our, our guest today is Matt Johnson. He's He's a drummer known for his work in tooth and nail and tooth and nail adjacent bands like roadside monument blenderhead uh a little bit in raft of dead monkeys uh earlier we got don't know who i've never heard uh probably a half dozen others uh and he was an elder at mars hill church and the author of the book getting jesus wrong welcome to the show matt thank you very much nice to hang out with you guys yeah, I saw I saw you a few weeks ago, maybe a month, month and a half, something like that. Yeah, um, yeah, at the roadside show. Yeah, had had a little little. I don't know. I don't know if you considered it a, a warm up for the big show at Furnace Fest, but uh, you know, a smaller reunion yeah. show leading up to a very large show. And uh, yeah, kind of a kind of a warm up. It it yeah, it went pretty well, and Furnace Fest was great. Um, it's kind of crazy you do all this preparation for you know flying across the country to play for 35 minutes but it was a, it was a good time so <laughs> yeah so i i got to see a longer set <laughs> so i got the better show i guess yeah, uh, yeah, yeah it was it was it. neat so many so many old timers from from the local you know 90s and early 2000s music community out there you know uh yeah. dave bazan showed up who may or may not be responsible for for the breakup of the band initially, right? It's, uh, it's uh, debatable. Yeah. 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 Uh, no hard feelings. No. Now, no, what's no. the, sorry, sorry. What's the story with the, um, when did you guys actually break up as a band and, and then get back together? Like, how long was the hiatus? Yeah. So, Roadside played until the summer, late summer, early fall of 98. And, um and then our bass player jonathan joined up with pedro pedro the lion and played uh played with pedro for a little while and there there was kind of some conflict there you know 
it, it's probably worth talking to Doug about how that went down. Our guitar player, Doug, like I, at one point, Doug said that he and uh, and Dave had had kind of a heart to heart about that and that Dave didn't want to get in the way of of the band continuing or whatever. But it, at the end of the day, Jonathan made his choice to play uh, to play in Pedro. So no hard yeah. feelings. We're all still pals. So. <laughs> yeah, there's 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 a bit in the in the liner notes that uh, was it L- Lars Gottrich wrote for the the reissue that you guys just put out of of I'm the Day of Current Taste, where yeah Doug Doug Lorg says uh, says after after the breakout Lorg uh, the the breakup uh, sometime that summer Lorg remembers just just turning around and Dave was in my apartment since we were moving stuff. Uh, quote, I want to apologize. I told Jonathan that if him being in Pedro was going to be the end of Roadside, that he couldn't be in Pedro. And I was like, well, it's over, dude. So it doesn't really matter. Uh, <laughs> so there you go. That's the story straight from Doug. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I saw saw Dave there and everybody was friendly and catching up and clearly no hard yeah. feelings there. And yeah. no and, hard uh, feelings at all. So that that was that was cool. Uh, I remember Jeremy Enoch was at the show, and then at Sunny Day yeah. Real Estate, you guys played the same day at Furnace Fest, right? Yep, yep. Uh, they played a great set to 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 a great crowd, and man, they sounded awesome. Uh, incidentally, uh, Jonathan actually tried out for Sunny Day, and um, was kind of in the running as their um, their fill-in bass player. I don't know if you'd say fill-in anymore. Maybe Nate is just not for, gonna for, play with them anymore. But no, he, yeah, for Sunny Day, for yeah. for for now, or or he tried out back in the day, like when they were coming back uh, together for. Yeah, uh, just recently he tried out for them oh, okay. for this tour. Oh, interesting. Um, I think it sounds like he decided against it for one reason or another. But it was cool that he was in the running and. Uh, actually during the roadside practices he had bought all this gear that he thought would be be good for sunny day and like he got a new bass and a new cabinet mm. and stuff and um and he said he learned like 40 songs and yeah pretty crazy but um so that was kind of cool that he had a shot at that i didn't i didn't know until reading these these liner notes that that your the the final roadside monument album i'm the day of current taste was released the same day uh, well, your third album came out the same day as Sunny Day Real Estate's third album, How It Feels to Be Something On. Did did you ever uh, play on the same shows with, with them back in the 90s? No, we never played with Sunny Day, but they, I mean, they were always sort of like adjacent, um, at least in like in the circle of friends. Mm-hmm. Um, I would I wasn't friends with Jeremy, but like friends of friends kind of and spent some time over at his house and stuff so we were on a friendly kind of name uh first name basis and stuff but um we never played with them but they were kind of adjacent to the little scene that we were in i guess i mean definitely on a bigger level for sure right Um, i mean they were already on sub pop and having music videos on mtv and stuff at that point the batman forever soundtrack oh yeah (laughs) I think that's actually where I first heard them. (laughs) With uh, with you too, famously, "Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me." Right? That's uh, that was the single from from the big single from Batman Forever. Not actually like well, actually maybe that one was actually in the movie, but it was one of those songs inspired by the movie Batman Forever situations. No, I see. (laughs) 
be before we go further, because I'm kind of interested in if you could fill in some of my gaps in in understanding sort of the the Christian or Christian adjacent local music community prior to Mars Hill. Um, mm -hmm. But be before that, if you could just give us a little little bio of of your history with evangelicalism, um, if you were raised in a in a in a religious family, if you went to Christian school, any of that sort of thing. Yeah, no, I mean, not really. My my folks had come from religious backgrounds. My mom came from a very kind of pious, uh, progressive, pious um, background. And my dad was Catholic. Um, I don't think it was very popular when they got married because, you know, mixing the two religions was a no-no in the 50s. <laughs> but um, I think at some point my mom went to go get catechized Catholic just, you know, so that they were sort of unified in that way. And for whatever reason, she couldn't hang with the catechesis and didn't like the priest or something. So mm. she's like, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. Um so I didn't grow up going to church and uh, I mean, it, you know, like we would go to church with the grandparents on high holidays and stuff like that. So, you know, Christmas and Easter. Um, so my memory as a little kid going to church is like at the candlelight service. And it was so cool that I could hold a candle and play with fire in a controlled situation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that was about the extent of it. Um, my dad kind of retained some, some stuff and we, we would have like recited mealtime prayers and and then at some point i want to say i was about 12 or 13 and i've told some of this story uh elsewhere but um my folks got into amway <laughs> that, okay that schlocky pyramid scheme and the Betsy for whatever DeVos reason family business right yeah so oh boy. um you know so for whatever reason, like there are, are ch large chunks of that business where it's very Christian-y, mm -hmm. you know, um, kind of, I, I guess you could say like kind of prosperity gospel kind of stuff. And um, so my folks got involved in that strain, or at least were somewhat connected to that strain of Amway. And then suddenly it was important to go to church. So my dad started taking us, um, uh, I'm the youngest of four and my next brother um, closest in age is seven years older than me. So he must've been, oh, wow. I'm trying to remember if, if, if he was still living at home at any rate, my dad started taking us to church and we were going to, uh, Oh gosh, what's that big uh, church on the East side in Kirkland overlake. Yeah. Overlake. Yeah. So we would go to the Overlake. Scandal about, with Bob Moorhead, as I recall. Right. Always back going in the... to the churches in the with the scandals, man. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. But, yeah, I remember going there as a kid. Don't didn't they like have an escalator? Probably. Yeah. It was a big church. Yeah. Uh but but we would go maybe once a month and I, I was just like, what this is stupid. Why are we doing this? You know. Um, I had an older sister who I think it was actually through some sort of Amway, some sort of Amway meeting where they actually had a religious service either before or after one of their meetings. And my sister had, you know, sort of a salvation experience at one of these. And I guess kind of drag, you know, drug my dad up there for, you know, the altar call moment. And 
my dad being, you know, sort of a Jack Catholic was like, what the hell is this all about? You know? Um, so my sister really kind of stoked her, you know, she had a very vibrant faith and, um, she was living in Germany, uh, with her husband who was stationed in the, the military there. And every time she would come back to visit our family, my brothers and I would joke about how she would kind of pick all of us off, you know, with the evangelism pitch, like every time she'd come for a visit, you know? So, uh, each one of us sort of one by one kind of had a salvation moment and got saved and said, you know, said the prayer with her and all that. So I didn't, you know, I, so all that to say, I didn't quite, I didn't really grow up going to church. Um, and when we went occasionally, it was sort of annoying, but by the time I was in high school and my sister evangelized me and, you know, I said the prayer and all that stuff, she started taking me to church. And so I went to a tiny, um, Pentecostal church for a couple years. And then a few years after that was at, uh, started going to the Calvary in Seattle. That's which what kind I, of, yeah. That's what yeah, I wanted to we, get into in talking about the the, the pre Mars yeah. Hill. I I've gotten the impression that Calvary Chapel in in the U District mm -hmm. that yep. that that was kind of the locus for for the the Christian musicians of of the early to mid nineties uh, uh, in Seattle. That I think like like Damien Gerardo and Dave Bazan, I believe, went there, yep. and for a sure. bunch of people yep. that ended up at Mars Hill previously went there. Yep. Um, yeah, I'm yep. wondering, wondering if you could, if you could describe what that community was, was like, um, and, and I don't know if you have any thoughts about how, how that transformed, how, how, how people moved out of there to Mars Hill so much, um, yeah. it's very different theology. Yeah, uh -huh, for sure. Yeah. So after a couple of years and, uh, I was living in Kent with my folks and was farting around in community college there. Um, I, I had met some folks from that were going to Calvary. In fact, I think the first person I met that went there was Damien Gerardo. And I was at a, um, we were at somebody's like backyard barbecue, like a birthday thing or something. And we both were friends with this, this punk dude that was going to Calvary, I guess. And, um, Damien was there and you know Damien had the the uniform so back in the day you know if like you you had like uh the uniform and you saw like certain uh paraphernalia mm -hmm. <laughs> you go like oh it's one of my guys I need to talk to that guy over there um so I got to chatting with Damien and I seem to remember maybe sometime after that I saw him up on Capitol Hill in front of Dick's or something the the Dick's uh, on cap on cap hill and say that he was that's a local burger chain for those uh that, not that's right <laughs> not familiar with seattle yes and there's a famous yeah. seattle saying i'm um, gonna get a bag of dicks right that's uh yeah anyway sorry you yeah you can order them by the bag there so yeah there you go that's my right. kid wants to work yep. at dicks really go bad eat a bag of dicks. that's what it is well, sorry dude, Matt. they're gonna be paying 20 bucks an hour to start i know I they're mean, the, come on they are a shining example of a great local business uh uh, actually supporting their employees, even though it's a fast food industry. So shout out to Dick's. No, we don't doubt. have any sponsors for the show. Hey, but Dick's, maybe we do if now. You're, if you're listening, yeah, um, yeah, a deluxe and a special. That's that's my go-to. 
dude, you can't turn down a bag of dicks. I mean, come on. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so I saw um I saw Damien in front of Dicks and he was out there pounding the pavement witnessing, man. He had like a handful of tracks and it's oh, like, okay. oh hey man, remember I saw you at so and so's party? He's like, oh hey, how's it going? Um, so it was pro- you know, not much longer after that. Well, that would have been I don't know, 92, maybe. I'd say pro- probably sometime in 93, I started uh driving up to go to services at the Calvary because I knew that my kind of people were there. Mm-hmm. Um, so Damien was there, uh, folks that later started uh that kind of 70s funky band soul food um they lived in the soul food house um up north uh right off of, of aurora and um soul food 76 was soul that the full food, name or soul is that food, a different se- thing yeah soul food 76 yep okay and um also another another big draw to going there is my buddy uh billy power was um mm. he started promoting shows and my band don't know um he wanted to get us on some of the shows at this coffee house that they started called the rock house. Okay. And, um, so we got on some of those bills playing with like poor old Lou, Damien Dorado and, uh, soul food. There was a handful of others. Um, and it was around that time. It all kind of like mashes together, but I started a group house, uh, the house of funk. And that's where we don't know that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, mm-hmm. that's where don't know would practice. And we would have house shows in the living room, pretty often that's where blenderhead where we got our start and billy power was the front man for blenderhead right and then yep. also he worked for for tooth and nail uh doing pr or uh I... yeah he he and i i think so like he originally he started out before tooth and nail was in seattle uh they were still down in southern california before they moved up but uh, Billy was doing all of the mail order operations from Seattle. Oh, okay. Originally, and then he may have done some uh, PR right when they moved up, but he he became like the basically the office manager. Hmm. Um, and that was, that was that, like in Pioneer Square, right? Right, right. Hmm. Yeah, and he worked there until I want to say 2002, and then he hmm. he moved to Nashville after that, but. Yeah, so he definitely, uh, Billy was definitely a, a very important figure in, uh, in the tooth and nail scene. And, you know, going way back to the early 90s, too, was like promoting shows. Um, yeah. All and he had been guys. in, uh, yeah, and and he had been in a part of the the punk rock scene way pre-tooth and nail um, and was good pals with Mark Solomon, who was in Crucified. So he, he goes way back um so yeah he was putting on shows uh we started our our group house house of funk and we're throwing shows um there and so that whole community um there was like a college group called crew that would meet on wednesday nights i think right um it was kind of church campus crusade yeah that kind of thing so it was like uh church light it's it's the exact they shortened the name of it at one point Mm. It used to be called Campus yeah. Crusade, yeah. Okay, there you go. Um, so yeah, we would go. Uh, that was basically church for us in our community. Um, mm-hmm. and they were running this coffee house out of the the church. And the cool thing about it is like as far as like a Christian venue goes, they were um they were fairly hands-off and just let the bands kind of run things the way they wanted to. Like a, 
I seem to remember at some point, like one of the pastors saying like, Hey, you know, you might consider doing a little bit of evangelism from stage, but they weren't, they weren't super heavy handed about it. And I didn't ever get the sense that if somebody who was not a Christian came to, it would feel any kind of bait and switch, you know? Mm -hmm. So it was nice that they gave us a lot of freedom to kind of do our own thing. Um, and so, you know, eventually Blunderhead broke up and then Roadside started. In fact, Roadside probably, I think, played the last rock house show at that location. Um, but during that time, too, it, it's sort of interesting that you have like, you know, kids in their um, late teens, early 20s who are have had like a youth group experience have maybe grown up in the church, maybe not, um, and are just figuring their shit out, you know? Mm -hmm. So you kind of have this commonality, this common belief. Um, my sense at that time was that, you know, probably 50% of the musician types really wanted to use their music for evangelism and 50% were sort of like trying to make sense of their youth group experience. And if they wanted to, you know, evangelize with their music and i think a couple years into it i was feeling more like um you know we're not pastors and it's it's not our job to evangelize through our music so i always felt a little bit put off by that impulse but we also had a toe in that world and that's kind of where our connections were um and I think yeah, there, there's that that phrase used all the time or it's almost a cliche now that like yeah. Christian band versus Christians in a band. Yeah. And, right. And that yeah. was a really yeah. important distinction to, uh -huh. to, to let people know which one of those you were at the time. Right. <laughs> yeah, totally. So, yeah, I was in I was in the bands Christians in a band bands, I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and not um, always all Christians in the band. There wasn't like a litmus test. Right. For being in it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, so, that was sort of the vibe of it. And, you know, at that time, um, I think that, uh, you know, Sunny Day was a really big deal at the time because Jeremy had kind of come from that scene. And I think it, I, I want to say was like a Calvary attender and was friends with the poor old dude guys and stuff. Hmm. And at some point, like kind of made a, made a, uh, you know, a, some sort of statement that he was, you know was rededicating his life to the lord or had a renewal of his faith or whatever and i it always had the sense that like jeremy was sort of like the poster child for that scene it's mm -hmm. like hmm. you know folks that were sort of like christian scene adjacent were always kind of looking for a mascot to um to kind of sponsor them in a way yeah and and jeremy and sunny day were kind of kind of the he was sort of that guy at that time yeah um, i always had that sense too the like like that like the christian punk kids wanted to consider sunny day part of their scene but right. but you know jeremy's rededication or conversion whatever i always heard it as a conversion and what i heard was right. that that was a source of major friction that that arguably is what caused sunny days breakup originally that uh, yeah. the he was the only christian in the band of the band and uh that that was a, a problematic thing for the rest of them not wanting to be identified by you know his, his he was writing more explicitly religious lyrics and things right 
that the rest of them were like, I don't know if that's really our thing too, man. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, all of that, um, at least my recollection of it is all sort of, that's sort of the feel that I got for that yeah. too. But there was definitely a sense of like Sunny Day played on the John Stewart show and everybody's crowd around the TV, like, Hey, that's our guy. You know, yeah. it's like a really big deal. Oh, that's wow. cool. Um, so, so Calvary Chapel was the main church the folks would go to the rock house was was the venue and then house of funk you were putting on shows as well i think i saw uh i believe chris esty another guy with that had tooth and nail uh connection he, he worked there a long time he he was posting the other day about i think he said mxpx's first show in seattle was at house of funk am i right there yeah yeah, yeah. and then and then there was there was the hiawatha house as well right uh -huh. was, was that a similar situation isn't that's where damien lived right uh, Damien lived at the house funk too. And he, oh, he, he actually, did. Okay. uh, yeah, he rented out the laundry room. <laughs> and so like, it, what's the rent on a like, laundry room? <laughs> I, I don't know, but it was cheap. Um, but I remember we were trying to get all of our friends to live there. And, you know, some folks were like, well, yeah, I'd love to, but I don't have a job. And we just say, whatever, man, we'll work it out. <laughs> um, Damien, Damien was all one to of those be young guys. Again. We were like, dude, come, you're right. We were like, dude, come live at our house. He's like, man, I I don't have a job right now. We're like, dude, just sleep in the laundry room and I don't know, give us 50 bucks or something. I don't even remember what it was. At some point, he even was sleeping in the garage. Like he, there wasn't even an entry into the garage from the house. He literally would go out of the house and open the garage door and there was oh. a mattress in there. You and have he, got yeah, to be kidding. He lived there for a couple of years. Wow. So, no, so was man, the name was due to the, the smell of all of those dudes that can't afford uh, deodorant and rent? Um, <laughs> or or did it have anything to do with... I mean, you, you, you played in some more funky bands earlier, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Don't Know was sort of like, uh, I don't know, split the difference between... Primus, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and uh, the the Minutemen, or something like that. Mm. It, it doesn't age real well, but it was a super fun band. Yeah, we we would uh, we'd dress up and um, you know put on ridiculous clothes and get dancers up on stage. It was a lot of fun. That sounds almost kind of like uh, Five Iron Frenzy stuff they used to do in the '90s. Like they would dress yep. up and star trek outfits and come and play a show or something like that yep yep same kind of uh feel and vibe different musically but for sure same, yeah. same kind of sensibility a lot of humor just having having a lot of fun bringing the party cool yeah so, so yeah it was a good so, time so 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 that's the the a lot of the major components of what's what's happening uh in the christian music scene in seattle in the mid 90s mars hill gets planted in 96 and mm -hmm. and mark's coming out of of another east side church antioch which i as i recall antioch's real focus had for a long time had had been um i mean like the pastor is next football player the seahawks used to have their practice practice facility pretty close to where antioch was they, they were in the Kirkland area uh, mm -hmm. and, and I, and uh, one of the other co-founders of Mars Hill, uh, Mike Gunn was very involved with athletes in action, I believe. Mm -hmm. So 
at least those two founders had a very, you know, uh, masculine and, and, and sports sort of connection and very East side. And, and we're starting this church with a, with a third person, Leaf Moy, um, which brought in a lot of these musicians and artist types, uh, a fair amount from Calvary Chapel, but with, with reformed theology and stuff, not, not, uh, uh, the more charismatic uh, side of things that Calvary Chapel was. Um, so, what was mm-hmm. what, what was what was it like when I don't know when word was getting out about this and what was drawing people in initially and 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 bringing people over to Mars Hill? I can, I mean, I can only speak to my experience and um, you know, I guess kind of a shared experience that my my buddy Jeff and I had, Jeff Becker mr mr suffering um so i was going uh to to calvary and going to that um that college group and there was a guy that used to who was this guy kevin i can't remember his last name um but he used to help run sound at these rock house shows and i was over at his house one day and uh we were just chatting and and he said Hey, I'm I'm helping out and running sound at this new you know church that's starting up called called Mars Hill, and I'm like, oh well, what's that all about? And you know he's just telling me a little bit about it. It seems like there's a lot of excitement around it, and he had some kind of like vision statement. Um, he had like a printout of like what the, the the big idea for the church was, and sort of this this vision statement. And he's like, well, here, check it out. Let, let me know what you think. And I was reading through it, and I just liked that they really were putting an emphasis on wanting to do outreach to the arts community in Seattle and that Mm -hmm. they really saw, um, they really saw value in artistic people being a part, uh, part of the church and that that was going to be really central. And he was dropping like, you know, philosophers and stuff that I was interested in, um, and, and was reading and, and I thought, huh, well, maybe I should check this out. So I want to say that I went, I went a few times when they were originally meeting in that church, uh, up by the zoo. And mm. I may have gone to the, um, the first public launch service where, uh, Sean, uh, Sean Diamond, um, did like the, um, he did that whole thing where he basically did it was almost like a performance art thing where he was doing the uh uh god is dead the nietzsche's god is dead thing mm-hmm. you know within <laughs> doing that sort of theatrically i'm like this is weird <laughs> um <laughs> but it was all like candlelight and kind of gothy you know and they were trying to like write their own original music and you know there was an aspect to it that felt like they were trying a little too hard but i but i also appreciated that there was this sort of a diy vibe in the air like they were trying to they're striving to do something different and Had i they articulated the fact... those four pillars the the meaning beauty truth community yeah. was that already something that they were using I don't remember if that at that time they were, but it would have come shortly after that mm. by the time they moved to the to the Laurelhurst Church. But I so I attended a few times early on in '96, 
and uh i didn't start attending regularly until they moved to the laurelhurst church and um i started going sometime in 97 Mm -hmm. and uh and jeff i remember jeff got uh plugged in really early on like it was around the time that they moved to laurelhurst and he started helping out on bass with their praise band and stuff and he had mentioned hey that that church that you mentioned, I'd, like I've, I've been going and I think they might be trying to get Bazan to be like the, the main music guy there. Cause they hadn't really established that yet. And I was like, Oh, that, that's cool. So it just felt like there was good kind of energy and like the vision of what they wanted to do was, was really cool. And it was like a, there was a real mix between um, sort of a, a traditional, theological point of view i guess but not sweating the stupid stuff you know Mm -hmm. um i i remember like going to some like some meetups and stuff and and um i mean it's like very shallow now like reflecting on it but you know going to a backyard barbecue and and folks are drinking and you might see somebody smoking and it wasn't there wasn't a disconnect of like this is a sort of a church adjacent thing that we're doing here and nobody nobody was hung up on that, you know, and right. I thought, okay, well, this feels kind of more my speed. People aren't hung up on stupid legalistic stuff. Um, and they were really supportive of the arts and, um, you know, another part of it too, is like the, the music that we were creating in the Calvary days, it, it always felt a little bit like you kind of had to argue you per, your position if you weren't going to be doing evangelism through your music mm. and the community at mars hill i just never got that heat at all um so it just felt very kind of free artistically you know which was was that was yeah. nice mark would often say i mean granted this was years later when i got there but he would say conservative theologically liberal culturally yeah. and and Mars Hill would eventually, you know, Mark would join kind of with the crowd of the the neo-reformed or the new reform movement, which obviously included John Piper, Tim Keller, Matt Chandler, those kind of big names in the throughout the aughts. But yeah, th- he definitely preached many sermons against legalism, and it seems like one of his favorite sermons that kept coming up and up again was the furrow-browed religious leader, like, you know, pounding people with a Bible and Mark Driscoll would obviously say that's not a good thing, you know. Yeah, I have a good theology, but being a a neat nick or whatever phrases he used to use to to make fun of those people, religious right. people, um, would mm-hmm. be one of his one of his big points. Well, he barely yeah. could have furrowed a brow back then. He was like twenty five. That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Know? yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I do. You, do you think that 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 he got? the music and art that the people were creating there or more recognized that facilitating it was ultimately good for health or growth or, or, or whatever built community building there. I, I, I don't know if I can really say, I mean, I, I, it would seem kind of snobby to say like, well, he didn't really like that stuff, you know? So, Cause I don't, I really don't know. Like, I remember having conversations with him and it felt like like he he could talk music shop enough to where it seemed like he had interest in some of that stuff but mm-hmm. um 
sometimes i mean the cynical side of me could say like he knew and i i think in one sense like whether it was calculated or not like like he knew how to kind of recruit people to the to the team yeah. and and pull talent together he just did and he i think he knew how to he understood how to recognize if somebody was well connected in the community um like i think he recognized that with jeff like jeff was very uh very much a part of the ollie Jacine, you know prior to the paradox he was volunteering at the velvet elvis which was a little theater similar kind of theater um type venue down downtown um and he was he was doing stuff at the the old firehouse in redmond as well which on the east yeah. side to so the other side of the lake from seattle for, for those that don't know that was like a major major hub for all ages music and and a hangout space when there weren't shows and he was in the band band uh was it 90 yep, pound wolf sure. on tooth and nail yeah yep, yep. okay yeah, and then he went on to do uh, kind of his own solo thing, Suffering the Hideous Thieves, that was, was kind of more of a a spazzy version of Nick Cave, maybe with like an ensemble and stuff. Hmm. Um, yeah, but, pretty much half then, the musicians in Seattle played in that band right. at one point or another. Yeah, totally. And then he and I started Raft of Dead Monkeys initially. Um, I quit after uh, after we recorded a couple EPs, but... Um, but yeah, I mean, I so I think Driscoll knew how to, um, yeah, he just knew how to spot that and kind of re recruit people. I he had a sense that the bands that I was involved in were trying to, we were trying to do something different. Like, you know, we when Roadside was playing, we knew that what we were doing would fit well, sort of in the. Uh, the Velvet Elvis circuit um, or some of those East side venues or whatever. Um, but as an example, like at the Velvet Elvis, they had a little, they were kind of snobby about the tooth and nail association. Um, mm -hmm. So we, we tried to get on some shows there, but we were getting a little resistance and we, we were like, okay, it must be the tooth and nail thing. So what we would do is we'd actually just rent the space out um, we'd pay to rent the space and we would ask bands uh, that would normally play on bills there to come play the show. And we did that like twice hmm. had, you know, we had pretty good shows and, and then it was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. You guys are in, that's fine. You know? Um, and I mean, to the point, like we could, we could ask to be put on a bill and have a pretty good shot at it. So we kind of had to like elbow our way into that scene a little bit and kind of, um prove our credibility somehow because we actually were a band that could you know hold our own in that scene mm -hmm. and i i think you know stuff like that driscoll was able to kind of read that and say that's the kind of um take on things and sort of the energy that we want to be here so uh so yeah he recruited jeff and i and and a handful of others and um you know whether he you know he wasn't going driscoll wasn't going to shows like that but it, it seemed like he sort of appreciated what we were doing and wanted us to be a, a part of what they were doing so that felt that felt good that a quote-unquote pastor would say like hey i like what you guys are doing we we want you to be a part of what we're doing you know mm -hmm. yeah and so from there kind of with that this 
the joining of the artistic community with early Mars Hill. Um, presumably you kept attending and then you reached a point where you became an elder and associate pastor. So you, you worked your way yeah. up into the leadership of the organization. And I think I'm, I'm interested and in, I think a lot of our audience would be interested in what, what was it like being, you know, on staff an associate pastor and elder at Mars Hill church? Like what was the, mm -hmm. the day to day like, what, what were Sundays like, you know, what, what was that world like for you as you got into it? Yeah. I mean, I always tell folks that when it comes to the dysfunction at Mars Hill, um, there's like different layers to it. And maybe, maybe Zach, maybe both of you actually have this experience is that as a volunteer um you may not see like some of the weird cultural stuff maybe you do maybe you don't um but as you take on more leadership you get a little bit closer to kind of you know seeing behind the curtain a little bit um so i was an associate pastor in the uh, initially in the music mystery because I was you know playing in, in bands and things like that um, so we had sort of a training process for folks that wanted to be a part of that ministry and I, I helped with some of that and then I switched over to to help out with uh, redemption groups which is sort of like uh, um, groups that would meet up you know folks that were maybe going through some tough times and needed to reflect on uh you know, areas where they were stuck in life or have, have been harmed in some way. And, you know, you kind of talk through that thing, those things as a group through sort of like a biblical lens or whatever. So I was a part of that ministry um, uh, after maybe the first or second year after I, I came on as an associate guy. So that was just a volunteer thing initially. Um, and I became a pastor right around for anybody that's, you know, that knows the timeline right around the time of the firing of uh paul petri and bent meyer so that was a trip. seven um yeah 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 um that was that was a good signal <laughs> to leave <laughs> but we but we didn't and in fact like i was reflecting with paul petri later and it was it was probably like a year after maybe not a year six months eight months after we left in 2014 and i reached out to paul and i said you know hey i owe you, you an apology you know and we were we were talking about that and i i just i was like i don't know you know like in hindsight you you look and see like i can't believe you guys were treated so horribly and you know people like me could go along with that and he's like oh well you you guys were you guys were groomed basically you know Cause here we were like, you know, I'm not saying like any of us that were new leaders were, you know, we're, we're grown ass men and can make our own decisions, but it was so weird to be in an environment where there's some really heavy shit going down and it's like, everybody's being told, well, well, I can trust that guy. I don't know if I really understand what's going on here, but so-and-so is close to it and they understand it, you know? So I can't make heads or tails of this, but if somebody's saying that, you know, so-and-so pastor needs to be un under discipline or something like that, you just kind of go along with it, you know? Um, so yeah, it was, it was pretty awful to kind of come around and say like, that was pretty awful to be there at the time and not have my 
bearings enough to ask my own questions and um so yeah it was a trip um uh i came on staff in 2011 and i worked on the the central staff and the on the creative team and was helping with some book, book publishing stuff um just keeping the the book publishing timelines going and um uh making book recommendations you know for people that were sending in pitches and things like that i also helped to oversee the the resurgence uh blog mm -hmm. um and then yeah like over especially as a staffer like um so getting back to like seeing behind the curtain you know as a churchgoer then a volunteer and then as you take on more leadership on into a staff role you begin to see more and more levels of dysfunction and by the time I was uh on staff it was like it was really strange to be around a group of people that were so talented and to really enjoy what I was doing but to just feel this total heaviness and fear all the time mm. because there was this code of like don't step out of line you got to make right. sure that you're in lockstep with what we're doing here don't ask questions I mean stuff like um you even if you were in good standing as a staff person you couldn't look for a job without like explicitly saying it like i mean how weird is that that you couldn't even look for a job and like once that wasn't that was known um then all eyes were on you and like oh well what are are you not on mission with what's going on now oh. you know um so there there was all these pressures all the time it was just totally crazy and you had uh maybe a, a, a sense of loyalty for mark i would i would imagine because you had a a a more personal connected history with him like you you lived in his house uh for for a yeah. couple of years mm -hmm. um i seem to recall didn't didn't your wife like cut his hair for a long time <laughs> yeah yeah like, like these sort of like intimate like personal connections that like most people wouldn't have anything like that with him you know yeah um and and it's 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 gotta be a bizarre environment um especially i mean i can't imagine joining the staff right after the firings of of paul and ben that's i mean that was just instant chaos that, that oh yeah that that brought about just a massive reaction from the congregation that had to be responded to immediately and yeah. how, how much like internal communication was there about perceived threats or or whatever i've never heard anything about like like you know you know i i was part of the people helping run that site we love mars hill um Mm -hmm. you know publishing people's stories about how they felt god brought them to mars hill and god brought them out of mars hill and here's how we got from a to b here and a lot a lot of that would have to do with what people yeah. would feel was was traumatic or abusive circumstances um and and i i knew that people within the church were were sharing the link with each other that you know previously they weren't going to send a link to an article in the stranger or whatever because that was always an adversarial 
publication towards Mars Hill and not to be trusted, but but these were people that had band members and put their names on the articles and people knew who we were and stuff. And and, and, and apologies if it feels like a self-serving question, but I've, I've just been no. always curious to know if internally they were saying this site is a problem. Just like, you know, I knew that they were, you know, we, we won't say his name on here, but, you know, you know, it was Wenatchee the Hatchet and mm-hmm. they were sending people to figure out who that was. I know that AJ at one point was tasked with tracking down physical copies of of the uh, Pussified Nation rants and destroying right. those. Um, so was was there a target on on the site or maybe were, were, do you know if they were talking about that stuff at all? Um. So like Wenatchee the Hatchet in particular. Uh, I'm sure what that. In particular? Yeah, mine, mine was the 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 We Love Mars Hill. Yeah, uh, I site. I don't I don't remember anything about that one specifically. I remember there being talk about Wenatchee the Hatchet, and I was uh, I was talking to another staffer. Um, I don't know who cracked that, but I somehow I I knew that it was he hadn't ever told me, but I like somehow I kind of put some things together and i was like that does that um so i'm not claiming that i like cracked that but in the last um i would say specifically in the last year or so i was always really curious to read that stuff because i thought he was very insightful um to what was going on and i think um i mean some of his stuff kind of gets into the stratosphere (laughs) you know but is very because quite insightful and there were very few times where i was like well he got that wrong i mean he had a pretty good pulse on things for sure and i i was always curious even though he was seen as sort of like um you know uh kind of i don't know an an enemy territory or something like that i was always like wow well that that was insightful (laughs) yeah Um, he he had um he had some journalistic chops yeah, I mean, for sure. I had conversations with him and he would talk about his process and needing to get backup and other sources, mm-hmm. you know, I, it'd probably be hard pressed to find anything in his history writing about Mars Hill that was like off base. I mean, it was all yep. pretty factually based and he he didn't get, um, I mean, it was also crazy. I want to say like he didn't really get hysterical with stuff like maybe some other blogs did but mm-hmm. it ended up getting hysterical because there was so much drama you know i mean it was just right. factual that there was just the the drama going on wrote an article just this year that I was reading today um, mm. in a Mockingbird. It was uh, published January 5th, 2022, 17 years at Mars Hill, life after disillusionment. And I thought this was interesting. I could just read a little bit of this um, for our audience. Um, quote, it was late 2014. And I just signed my name alongside 20 other Mars, former Mars Hill pastors to a document meant to recommend to the then current Mars Hill Elder Board that Mark Driscoll was not fit for church leadership and should be removed. The day I signed my name, 
I had an experience I'd never had before or since. I was standing in the kitchen washing dishes when suddenly a wave of panic hit me and I began sobbing uncontrollably. I kept my back to my two little girls playing in the next room and my wife, who automatically knew what was going on, invited me to take a break for as long as I needed. To take care of the girls, I went into our bedroom and sobbed into a pillow for at least an hour. And I'm not much of a crier, uh, unquote. Um, you know, you can you can share as much as you want with this, but I was um, I was just moved. Uh, and one of our big themes here with our podcast is just having empathy for people's stories and, and where they're at. Um, and I think you mentioned later in the article you didn't specifically have any bad things happen to you personally from another pastor or other leaders, but you still had this sense of trauma based upon what had happened and what some of your friends went through. And I was wondering if you wanted to share a little bit about that as much as you want or as little as mm -hmm. you want. Um, what, what it's like to, you know, Mars Hill collapsed in 2014 but there are still people eight years later right now that still deal with a lingering trauma based on what, ha what had happened in that place. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's huge. I think that, you know, if you, for anybody that's been in a really toxic community, it could be, you know, work, uh, a friend group or whatever, um, you know, that's hard enough to work through that. And then you add, a spiritual component to that and it just it just takes it to the next level you know because the folks that are up on stage speaking um for god you know it, it just takes it to such a another level um of hurt i think um yeah i mean i i've sensed that people that have had a hard time recovering out of that um it, it's really kind of a i don't know a time and commitment type thing because i've talked to folks that maybe that were there for a few years and left feeling relatively unscathed you know and maybe were even confused why people were so hurt right um but then you talk to somebody that's been there for 10 years or more and you're talking you're talking about something completely different you know yeah. yeah um like folks that uh I mean, to this day, I, I can't go into a church that has, if the music is samey at all, or if there are little things like they have a coffee station set up a certain way, or, you know, it's not like I get a panic attack, but I just feel sort of spiritually nauseated. You know, it's like, I don't ever want to do that again. I don't want to go back to that. I don't want to be reminded of it. I like some folks, um, say that it's hard for them to read the bible because they hear mark's voice you know oh, um and it's just that's so sad it's awful i mean it just it that stuff it really sticks with you and i have um yeah i just have a lot of compassion for folks that that go through hard church experiences um, and again, even for those that haven't been in the direct, you know, quote unquote, line of fire, um, I had a af actually after that experience that I recall in the article, I I called a a pastor, um, ex pastor friend, and I said, I'm so confused about what happened yesterday because 
you know, I kind of went through the list of, you know, here was my experience. You know, I never got yelled at. I was never demeaned in front of a group of my peers. I was never shunned, you know, whatever. Um, I'm not sure why I had this reaction. He's like, well, so imagine is what he said. Like if you were in a family where there, there was abuse and the dad was like beating up kids uh in the family but you just happen to get lucky and never be on the um on the bad side of that and you you were never physically harmed but you know what's going on and you know what's going on behind closed doors you hear yelling you see all the signs like people come out there's crying you hear yelling behind closed doors people have bruises you're going to go through your own form of trauma you know because you're thinking okay when am i going to be next you know um, so I, I think it really has a, a lasting impact. And again, for folks that were there for a long time and were, um, in certain positions of leadership, even as volunteers, like when you're around that, that kind of environment, it can't help, but, but really have an impact on you, you know, do you have dreams about it? Um, no, no, not that I can recall. Um, my wife has recalled having having dreams about, um, you know, confrontations with the Driscolls and things like that. Mm -hmm. But, um, but yeah, I never have. Yeah, I don't, it, I don't, I don't, I don't think I have. But, but I absolutely have not forgotten the sound of Mark's voice. Yeah, that whole like certain phrases i can only hear in his voice right um his cadence uh -huh. um it's yeah it's 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 wild um it's yeah go, some, go ahead dave i yeah i was gonna say and as some of the trauma too based and, and people had a lot of different reactions to this when mars hill eventually collapsed but you spent so much of your life you know so many people spent their 20s, their young life, um, not the organization, but just being young, uh, building this church and doing a lot of volunteer work. You know, I, I think you you mentioned in your article, I think it was like maybe 15 to 20 hours that you maybe put in, right, outside of like a normal yeah. job, like helping to build this church. Zach mm -hmm. uh, donated a lot of his time, I think, to the church. Um, I was just yeah. there three years. I was a community group leader, just a Bible study leader. So I didn't really, I was never like too deep into, you know, the inner, inner circles or anything like that. Um, but how does, yeah. how does that affect people when, man, I gave my life to this, but now all these serious issues are coming out with the leader, like the person who, we thought was doing good. We thought was preaching about Jesus and the gospel and the Bible. Um, but it turns out that when the phrase is up there, it's all about Jesus. The people mm -hmm. are saying, well, was it really actually all about Jesus? Right. Yep. Yeah. I mean, gosh, that kind of stuff can, it can make it. the thing that's that, has been so hard about that is all of the messages that we heard about accountability and humility and all that stuff. It's like, okay, you know, I was around, 
a lot of really good people that were really trying to put that stuff into practice in their own lives. And then when it came down to it, um, you know, our key leader could not and would not put that into practice, you know? And then you think about all the, all of the years that you put in, um, volunteering all this time and basically dedicating your life to to trying to build something and then you're like oh uh was this all fake you know you have to really rethink things and um yeah that's been hard you know like i i think back um when i think back to the years i was kind of most dedicated it's like um that was like my entire 30s like my whole life was wrapped up into that place and it's like i sure wish i could get that decade back you know yeah i could have been doing something else um and specifically i i I don't know if this is this is true i i kind of had this impression or maybe somebody told me this at the time i'm not sure but roadside monument did get back together for about a year in 2002 Mm -hmm. and uh yeah you were like writing new songs. Like there was a sense that this could be building into like a real thing again and, and mm-hmm. touring and all that. And, and then that stopped. As I recall, it was mostly your decision. Would you say that? Uh, To, to what, to, 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 to not devote energy to make, to trying to turn it into, Oh, a full time yeah. thing, and I, well, I was wondering if if Mars Hill and your your responsibilities to Mars Hill had something to do with you deciding not to to yeah. try this, because you know Mark yeah. was telling us men don't get hobbies, we bring yeah. in money, that's it. You know, right. you don't have time for fun, for you know <laughs> yeah. meaningful personal expression. You make money, and you're the pastor of your family. That's it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't. I don't, I don't remember, like, I do know that we had talked about, uh, being active again and sort of the, the limits that I wanted to put on that wasn't, um, I I think the other guys in the band maybe wanted to do more. And I was like, I can't be on tour all the time. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, by the time you're 30 or whatever, that those are pretty legit <laughs> considerations that, you know, when you're in your 20s and you just hit the road or whatever, you know, before you have family and responsibilities, it's easier to do that. Um, so I'm sure that some of that messaging was definitely, definitely influenced um, my take on that, mm-hmm. uh, for sure. And I was, you know, I was newly married to, I don't think I, you know, I didn't ever feel like, um, I was like suspect because I was doing stuff out of the church. I think it was encouraged. Um, Cause I, I mean, I think back to like all the volunteer hours I did and then the music I was doing um, out outside of volunteerism and stuff, I was busy like five or six nights a week. Mm. So it was like church stuff. I was playing in roadside and supine to sit another band. Oh yeah. Um, I remember them. Uh, yeah i saw you at the um okay yeah um so i was doing a ton i think at some point like a a pastor friend was like man you you seem kind of overcommitted 
and I think that was just generally good wisdom, you know, like, yeah, I'm, I'm a little overcommitted, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I, for sure, I do remember that messaging of like, you don't have time for a hobby, you know, you're yeah, exactly how you said it. Like you're a church goer, um, you volunteer here and you're the pastor of your family. That's all you have time for. Yeah. That was definitely some of the messaging for sure. I mean, I think in in some ways I kind of took that uh, with a grain of salt, but I think with how much I was doing at that time, um, it also felt kind of wise to sort of step back. Um, but I'm sure some of that messaging and the the decision for you know how things went with roadside, it was it probably informed some of that. I've definitely thought about some of the life altering decisions that I made that that whether or not where I landed was influenced by by what mark was teaching me about what my priorities needed to be and uh you know i try not to play too much of the the what if game but um yeah i know you got to be careful of that you can uh can kind of take you down some dark holes (laughs) yeah and and everybody everybody struggles with that we we all struggle with you know trying to re go over the past in our heads or worry about the future and we got to remember you know the only thing that exists is the present so yep. you can do, do the best to enjoy it when we're in it because yep. it's the only thing we're ever in. Everything else is an abstract. Um, yep. We, I, I mentioned briefly, briefly earlier that, that uh, Mark was not the only founding pastor of Mars Hill. It was him, Mike Gunn mm-hmm. and Leaf Moy. Not a whole lot is, is said about the other two guys. Mark, Mark was pretty good at, at branding it as the Mark Driscoll church. Um, mm-hmm. especially after the first decade. Um, but we, we've talked about the, the paradox, the all ages venue in the U district that the, the church opened when there was a, there was a law in the books preventing affordable uh, running of all ages clubs and churches were the loophole. Um, Leaf Moy bought this building. He, he, as I understand it, you know, he recognized the opportunity that that the church could could start this venue uh and found this building and and bought it and and the paradox uh was not like a big money maker for the church it was if anything mm-hmm. losing money most of the time that it was open but yeah uh leaf as the owner kept it going for a while like that um leaf leaf passed away quite recently mm-hmm. um and and People have been sharing their remembrances of him. He he wasn't just the owner of that building. He also was the primary preaching pastor at that location for at least a year. Mm-hmm. Um, during that time, you were playing in the primary band at that location. And, and if I hadn't already told you, I've mentioned it on here, but essentially I started going to Mars Hill having already gone to the Paradox for a good year. Yeah. And... Uh, like a month into college, a buddy said, Hey, a church runs that Matt from roadside plays music there. You want to go? Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, all, that's really all it took. Um, it's regrettable that, uh, I had any kind of influence for you. So, uh, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. That guy also gave me his copy, uh, his vinyl copy of eight hours away because I didn't have one. 
And he didn't even really own much vinyl. He just had sort of bought it on a whim and knew that I cared about it a whole lot more than he did. So he just gave it to me. Nice. Um, so, you know. It, it, That's a special memory. Yeah, it was nice. Yeah. And yeah. I got it got it right over here. Um, yeah, I'm wondering, I'm wondering if, if you'd like to talk a little bit about uh, Leaf and his, imp- his impact there mm-hmm. and, and what what his presence contributed to the culture of Mars Hill in contrast to Mark's style. Yeah. Well, yeah, super sad news. I knew that um, he wasn't doing real well for a couple of years. In fact, um, we, we had him over here to do some handyman work when I think he was going through some pretty hard stuff and we, we could tell that he, wasn't doing great, but we wanted to do what we could to support him in any, any way we could. Um, so that was a couple of years ago. So it was super sad to hear uh, that he died. But he, I mean, I just always have great memories of Leaf. I think he was a really good uh, presence at Mars Hill. I think that he, um, I mean, he literally like put his money where his mouth was in terms of like wanting to support uh arts oriented stuff in seattle um so much so that he he would you know buy a building that he was not going to be making a profit at you know for the sake of of the cause and i just always really respected that and i liked that um i really liked it in those early years that all this talk of plurality of leadership um we had a little glimpse of that early on where leaf was the primary pastor and leader at that location at the paradox and mark was doing other stuff and they were starting to experiment with satellite locations and things like that um so that was kind of a sweet time where the folks that frequented the paradox often um those folks would end up going to the paradox service you know so I think that he had a real impact um, and and a presence for that community, you know, that was really, really important, um, you know, and that only lasted for a short time because then, you know, Mark kind of became the, he was sort of the, uh, you know, the big event speaker and he kind of became like the satellite location speaker too but um but yeah those early years were were really sweet and i just always um i mean i was friends with leaf i wasn't super close with them but he was always really good to us and i i'd like to think that he had a good impact on the leadership of the church early on you know there's always this you know maybe it was misplaced but i always had this feeling that leaf and to a degree in the early years like mike gunn that those two guys could speak um could speak sense into mark when things were going a little bit sideways you know mm-hmm. and maybe that was kind of naive and like maybe in hindsight overall it was kind of naive but i i always felt like if anybody can talk sense to mark when he's off the rails like leaf is that guy yeah i've, I've um, heard lots of people say that yeah i don't know if that was true in reality or not i mean in some ways it doesn't quite look like maybe it wasn't that way maybe that was just an illusion but um 
you know, I always respected him at least for like being in that place and trying. <laughs> um, but yeah, I always, I, I have great memories of Leaf. I think that he was a good, a good presence there, especially early on. And, uh, and I think, you know, I, I don't know if I really understand the, the full story um, with him either, but he kind of got run out of town too. It was a little quieter than, than maybe the Petries, but I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think he got kind of pushed out of that pastoral team, maybe unnecessarily. I don't, I don't know how that I all definitely down, heard but... people speculate that. I mean, there was, yeah. there, was there is some... pretty substantially, I think. Yeah. Very sad. So gosh, my heart goes out to his family and uh, the people that he ministered to. I mean, he, he touched a lot of people. And I know that he had his own problems and I'm sure made his, his own mistakes and, and struggled with some things, but I, I only have good memories of that guy. And so, yeah, my heart, my heart goes out to his loved ones. Yeah. I, I only have good memories of him too, which feels like a wild thing for me to be saying about, about Mars Hill, but, um, yeah. but I, I really do only have genuinely good feelings a, a, about him. Yeah. Um, I sadly never got to never got to meet him. Just heard about yeah. him through other people, but yeah, it was all even back in the three years I was there. It was all positive. I wanted to. It, well, I found out actually on this podcast, uh, Matt, that you're an author. Um, mm -hmm. You mentioned your book title, uh, "Getting Jesus Wrong." Usually, um, we try to read at least most of an author's work before we have them on because. Um, you know, we usually want to talk about their work and kind of get that out there. But I have not read your book, but the title sounds incredibly interesting. But would you like to give us the elevator pitch as to what your book is about, why you wrote it, when it came out, all that stuff? So that book was uh, probably five years in the making. It took me a while to kind of center in on what I wanted to say. Um, I think I, I think the idea that I wanted to get across is that um, <laughs> over the years, the sort of like hyper masculine um, messaging that we were hearing at Mars Hill, like, you know, uh, uh, you know, Jesus as the warrior king, you know, he has a tattoo down on his leg and he's going to MMA Christ. Yeah, yes. yeah. That that whole vibe just was not connecting with me at all. And I read some stuff, you know, 10 plus years ago that really was challenging that whole idea um, that if you, you know, to put it in theological terms, if you want to see God in his glory, you know, you look at it, where you're going to see that glory most displayed and that's on the, on the cross, you know. Well, that seems a little backwards than how we would tend to uh, to see Jesus. So I, you know, that really challenged me. And um, so Martin Luther's theology of the cross, you can look that up. Uh, it's sort of like the statement that he gives after he posts the 95 theses on the Wittenberg door. So he he basically defends this theological position that's a theolo theology of the crossing that the Christian life is very counterintuitive. It's very backwards than what we expect. We think it's all about kicking ass for Jesus that we're going to, you know, um, he's going to help us achieve our dreams. We're going to build giant churches, all this. But, you know, 
to be a disciple is really <laughs> uh looks more like the cross so i guess that's that's sort of the background of where that that book came from and so i just kind of i wouldn't say it's really a memoir but there's an aspect to it where i sort of trace uh, my life as a Christian over maybe 25 year period saying each stop along the way, I thought it was this, I think I was wrong, you know? Um, and that kind of coincided with basically a midlife crisis. <laughs> I wrote that and finished that book as we were exiting Mars Hill. So it was really hard to finish. Um, it, it's, it's weird now, like several years later, I don't have anything to detract from that or take away from what I wrote. Um, there's maybe a few things that I would change. Um, but I was working with like a theological toolbox that was very entrenched in Mars Hill, even though I was feeling challenged in new directions and things and seeing things differently. Um, so it's hard to relate to it now. Um, but you know, I kind of kind of tell it all like I'm life is sort of a shit show right now. And uh I'd like to think that this whole thing is about death and resurrection. Because if that's not what it's about, I, I I think we're all screwed. So that's sort of the uh, the big picture of it. Um, and you know, I hope uh, it wasn't an international bestseller, but I I hope somebody was encouraged by it. It's wild to me that you were able to finish that book in that time uh, of your life. It was hard, man. It was I... so hard. I feel like I can still remember the look on your face when you left Mars Hill and walked into the church I was then attending anchor to check uh, it out and just the absolute shell shock. Yeah. That yeah. that it was it was evident and and you were you were in a tough place. Yeah. Yeah, those were tough times, man. Yeah. Uh 2014 to probably about 2016 definitely pretty shell shocked yeah i i get it um yeah. yeah i i wanted to 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 bring up uh uh your roadside infamy a little bit uh, <laughs> <laughs> but in thinking of 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 labels and the Christians in a band versus Christian band thing. And you talked about the difficulty booking shows because you were on tooth and nail. I I saw that, that Brandon evil, the, the founder of tooth and nail told you guys once that, that you're the band that gave the label street cred. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and I was talking to, to Doug at the, at the show a month ago or whatever. And, and he, he, wanted to point out that in the reissue of 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 this album on 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 vinyl i i'm the day of current taste that that now there is the the branding of it of uh it it comes out under the capital christian music group imprint oh, which yeah. means you are you are now label mates with amy grant michael w smith the newsboys just oh, like you always oh thought would happen we made it, man. We made it, Zach. I'm wondering if this means they'll <laughs> finally be allowed to sell your albums in Christian bookstores again. Because oh if, if you want to tell the story, how <laughs> how did you get banned from Christian yeah. bookstores? <laughs> so, yeah, on, on I'm the Day of Current Taste, um, I think it's the opening track, is uh, 
titled sperm ridden burden not on, on and, eight hours away um i just listened know, to that today uh, eight hours away i from enjoyed it man. yeah yeah <laughs> oh nice oh thanks yep. yeah i appreciate it uh yeah so in in certain select uh christian bookstores that was not allowed so um brandon they also didn't you know, sell bibles then right because <laughs> right <laughs> yeah you ever read genesis just uh <laughs> uh yeah have you ever read judges uh right be be some kind of sketchy stuff in there yeah so um jonathan was encouraged to retitle the song and he stuck to his guns and he got it i mean i gotta hand it to brandon like he gave the artists like um artistic freedom Mm -hmm. and so he's like okay well we'll see what happens and um and jonathan i think in maybe the first pressing he wrote uh, like a little card that they duplicated and put in each of the CD cases explaining the meaning of the song so mm. that hopefully it would kind of, you know, there wouldn't be as much controversy, but I I don't know how well that worked. So, yeah, I mean, it's sort of like that old thing of like, um, you know, too Christian for the non-Christians, not Christian enough for the Christians kind of thing. Uh, I, you know, in hindsight, like, roadside didn't really belong on that label but at the same time you know as far as like how we operated as a band the kind of shows we were playing things like that um but we had opportunities on tooth and nail that we wouldn't have had otherwise um Mm -hmm. you know at one point we were kind of courted by jade tree that uh pedro put a record or two on jade tree that would have been a good fit but we wouldn't have had the financial backing of a mm. two, tooth and nail and i always give the example of like when we were on the road inevitably your van breaks down yeah. um jade tree a jade tree is not going to send you money to help you finish the tour but you know fortunately tooth and nails got the supertones and mxpx so indeed <laughs> they send you money House and say put Funk it on the album budget and you finish MXPX. the tour so <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that that was by yeah. far their biggest success, yeah. right? Of course, MXPX went on to sign with a major label, but once you play uh, the House of Funk, sky's the limit. Oh yeah, dude. Yeah, yeah. You're you're destined to stardom if you play the House of Funk. I mean, we we cranked out all the hits. Roadside Monument next up, and I will come and see the show where they open for Amy Grant. Roadside oh, Monument yeah. opens for Amy Grant. Yeah. Oh yeah. The big uh, we'll CCMG showcase. Uh, that's right totally well i i would say it's better amy grant than michael w smith i mean right that's like these days for sure well matt uh thanks so much for coming on the show you don't need to say you're sorry (laughs) for me ending up at at mars hill because i liked your drumming or whatever i i'm i'm just glad i got to know you in that time i i was nervous at first um but it was it was neat that the friends that i made there just intersected with with you and rose and uh got to know you 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 folks over the years so it's been really nice and and i'm yeah for sure glad you're able to come on yeah i appreciate it man yeah well i only have have good memories of bumping and deal all these years and i'm glad that uh you guys reached out i think it's good to reflect on this stuff it's kind of awkward and painful but you know hopefully it helps other folks not feel alone when they're going through similar stuff so absolutely stories uh... stories are powerful well dave two weeks in a row with musicians yeah 
It's, uh, it's, it's new not, territory. It's not really my forte, not being a musician, but it's um, I am interested by the world of music. I had never heard Roadside Monument before today. I listened to uh, the album that you recommended. And uh, yeah, I liked a lot of it. I really liked the, um, I think I messaged you about the Iowa Backroads song where mm -hmm. they had some horns in there. I think you said that Jeff Betker, Mr. Suffering, uh, might have been playing those horns. And uh, yeah, there was some, there's some great songs on there. I liked it. Well, cool. Um, but with that being said, this has been another episode of Veterans of Culture Wars. Thank you so much for listening to us. If you would, wherever you like to get podcasts, please leave us a rating and a review as that helps other people find our show. We have a Twitter presence. We are at VCW Pod. On Twitter, I am at Dave J. Lester. Zach is at Muzak, M-U-Z-A-C-H. And you can visit his website. And we're recording October 12th. You can order his Christmas vinyl record in time for the holidays. So go to Muzak dot bandcamp.com get a copy of that and you can see some of his other art and things that he has going on there thanks again for coming on down to the vcw and remember as always the podcast is free but you still need to tithe 10 percent. yeah which you can do at our vcw merch shop etsy.com slash vcw paul there, there you go. go you got it in there all right done <laughs>